Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Looking ahead to several key events, including that event on Wednesday. Payrolls Friday just around the corner as well. Fantastic lineup of guests for you through the week and this morning as well. And we begin this morning's programme with Matt Hornback of Morgan Stanley. We're lucky to have access to several great rate strategists on the street. Matt, I'm pleased to say, is one of them. Matt, fantastic to have you with us on the programme. Let's just start with the price action right in front of our faces right now. Equities lower again and a bond market that's really not doing a whole lot. Why so, Matt? Hey, John. uh, Thanks for having me on. So, you know, look, this goes back to an issue that we actually talked about a couple weeks back, which is the idea that bond markets are caught between a fiscal rock and a QE hard place, right? We're basically talking about uh, this, this interplay between all of the issuance coming to market and all of the issuance that's ultimately going to be bought in the secondary by the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, now what we're seeing recently is the Fed peeling back on the pace at which it is buying treasuries. Um, that's probably one of the reasons why on a day like today, where the S&P is down about a percentage point, uh, you're only getting a basis point rally in the treasury market. Investors are very worried about the supply. Matt, if you look at the two-year yield in the U.S., it's linear and certainly log linear, and it's just grinding ever lower yield. Do you extrapolate that out to an ever lower and lower and lower yield, or can the Fed actually can control that glide path? I, at the end of the day, the, 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 the Fed um, has a, a modicum of control over the markets during certain periods of time, and then there are other periods of time uh, remember the taper tantrum in 2013, uh, where it completely loses control of the market based on you know a handful of words coming out of somebody's mouth, and so it, it's a, it's a very delicate balance. Um, I, I'd say at this point, what the Fed is trying to figure out is what kind of forward guidance can can get them to allow yields to remain low. And yet, when the time is right, allow those yields to start to gradually rise. It's a very tough balance. This is not an easy thing to accomplish. Matt, what would yields be if the U.S. were not selling record amounts of debt right now? Hello. I think, yeah, I, I, like, I think they, they, would, they would probably be much lower. Um, I, you, you could easily see the 10-year Treasury yield revisit the all-time low of 30 basis points. Uh, again, the amount of securities that the Fed is removing from the market uh, is is unprecedented. And when we talk about the supply-demand balance between what the Treasury will issue and what the Fed is buying, we also have to put that into the context of coupon bonds, right? We, we know that there have been a tremendous amount of Treasury bills that have been issued this year. We also know that at, towards the end of last year, the Fed was buying a lot of Treasury bills. Now the Fed is buying a lot of Treasury coupon-bearing uh, bonds. Uh, and if, they weren't, if, if the U.S. government wasn't going to issue any of those coupon bonds, almost certainly the 10-year yield would be closer right. to zero than one. Matt, you've got a macro mandate for Morgan Stanley right now. Let's macro over to Ellen Zatner. Combine her inflation view with your view of fixed income as the indicator of choice. For our listeners, are they ever going to garner a constructive real yield? I don't mean a positive real yield. I mean one that they can actually bank. 
Well, I mean, this has been a phenomenon the world over. And, and the answer yeah. probably for the next five years is no. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, real yield is a scarce asset these days, uh, especially when the Fed is removing so many of those securities that would otherwise offer you uh, a positive real yield. I think you would need to see, in order, in order for me to be wrong on that, uh, you would need to see the government expand the deficit uh, in a continuous way. I'm not talking about one year of higher deficits or two years of higher deficits. I'm talking about year after year after year of continuously expanding deficits. This is about a rate of change, not just uh, a nominal number every year. We need to see that happen in order for real yields to really start going considerably higher. Let's talk about the recovery as well, Matt. A little bit later this morning, I'll be catching up with your colleague, Chet Anaya, the chief economist at Morgan Stanley. There is a focus on consumption. And Matt, as I look at the sequencing of the reopening across Europe in a place like Italy, it's manufacturing last, first rather, and then at the back end, it'll be the consumer-facing sectors of the economy that open last. And you guys are pointing out that consumption will be the laggard here, the slowest to recover. Now, with that in mind, how hopeful can you be about a short, sharp recovery if consumer-facing sectors of the economy are last to open and consumption will be the laggard here? Well, I mean, particularly in, in the U.S., John, uh, if, if that's the case, it's, it's going to be a long slog because at the end of the day, the U.S. economy is mostly a consumer-based economy. And so, uh, if we experience the same type of dynamic that we're seeing play out in China, for example, uh, then it is going to be a slow recovery. And that is what our economists are suggesting in their forecast. Uh, we, we're not really getting back to any, any kind of consistent level of, of potential growth until 2022. Uh, you know, and, and that is something that um, we're all going to have to deal with. Right? It's, uh, the U.S. economy is, is driven by consumption. I'm struck by Warren Buffett and, and what he said this weekend. He was saying that he didn't get calls because, frankly, or the fact that he was getting calls were not actually at terms that were attractive to him based on what the Fed had done, based on the intervention that basically they had artificially propped up some of these companies and lowered borrowing costs. Do you think that investors who are investing alongside the Fed ultimately will be struck with insolvencies and losses, or do you think that they just won't get very big returns? Well, I just I don't think they're going to get very big returns, Lisa. I, at the end of the day, that the government um, has a, the government and, and the Fed, in a sense, have a, have a special ability uh, that it, it's not sort of commonplace in in the sense that they can go in uh, and they can increase their debt load. Right, the government can increase its debt load, um, and and the cost of that over time ultimately uh, would be borne out through the currency. Right. And, and what we're seeing um, over the over recent months is that the currency hasn't had a problem with it. Now, that's not to say that uh, it, it will never have a problem with it. And in fact, we do believe that the dollar is evolving through a topping process. And at the end of the end, end of the, this year, the end of, of, of the next year, the dollar is going to be weaker, perhaps substantially weaker than it is today. But that's ultimately where you would see uh, see the pain, if you will. Uh, hitting the government and uh, government's balance sheet uh, is through the currency. And we have not yet really seen that to any degree worth uh, worth writing home about. Matt, we've got to leave it there. Send my best to the team, won't you? Matt Horn back there of Morgan Stanley on the latest in the Treasury market and beyond. 
Right now is a really important interview, folks. I'm looking down at the Plaza Hotel here uh, on Central Park. Jane Foley knows the history of the Plaza Hotel, but what she really knows is 18 months, 17 months after the Plaza Accord 35 years ago, there was the Louvre Accord. The coffee was better there. And, and Jane, what's so important here is you can have dollar dynamics and all this international economics and China and the U.S. now and all that, and then it leads to instabilities where you've got to have a brand-new meeting. How close are we to instabilities in the Jane Foley world? Well, I mean, that is quite interesting. I think if the, the, the dollar continued to be uh, at these sorts of levels, maybe for the next year or so, then I, th- I certainly think that politics would certainly be coming into that equation. But I think for now, um, it's perhaps too early to be uh, wondering uh, whether or not politics are going to come in, what politics are, are going to potentially do. Uh, but I think there's one thing that we can say is that we are still, I think, very much in the early phases of this crisis. What you've just been outlining with respect to unemployment is really just still the beginnings of the demand side aspect of this crisis. If we get to the end of the year, and as most economists are anticipating, we've still got very elevated unemployment queues, and very suppressed wage inflation, then we are still looking at a very poor demand dynamic. And that is going to feed back into stock market valuations. It's going to feed through into all of the economic data that we're going to see. And it's not going to be a pretty sight. And Jane, the way that people are trying to, or governments are trying to plug this gap, this demand gap, is by printing money and by issuing record amounts of debt. And we've talked about the U.S. set to announce its quarterly funding uh, on Wednesday with record batch of debt sales. But it's not just the U.S. It's also China, uh, which is set to issue a record amount of local government debt. It's also in Europe, where the ECB is expanding its balance sheet. What is the long-term consequence of this massive sale of debt in nations worldwide? Well, I think it depends which nation that you're in, because if you are issuing debt in a currency that people really want to have, which would be um, really most Western economies of the U.S., obviously, and then European economies, uh, they can issue debt and, and, they'll, and they'll, they'll probably do okay. But if you want to issue debt and you happen to be an emerging market nation and you do not have uh, the patience of international investors just wanting or lining up to buy your debt, then you have an issue. And, and that is, I think, again, a real aspect of this crisis. I think the, the crisis that the emerging markets suffer uh, could be really quite marked. And whereas Western governments can find a way through this, and it's going to be pretty tough, I think it's going to be really, really tough if you happen to be in a, a very poor uh, country. Jane, let's touch on the US dollar as well. Many people were talking about this for a long, long time, that in the next downturn, any crisis, whatever shape it might take, we might question the risk-mitigating characteristics of the US dollar. Have we just cemented the status as the haven currency du jour, in fact, for a whole lot longer, the US dollar? I think we have, to be honest. And, and I think this is a function of you know the last 10 years, maybe the, the last 20 years, but certainly the last 10. And for instance, if you look at the data from the Bank of International Settlements over the last 10 years, really after the global financial crisis, a huge amount of debt started to be issued in U.S. dollars. A huge amount of cash of U.S. dollars is held outside the U.S. A lot of this is used for transactional purposes, again, in emerging market countries. And because a lot of these have grown really very significantly in the last 10 years, there's just a need for dollars to to carry out uh, businesses. So from that point of view, 
uh, the dollar is a sort of a practical safe haven for, for many types of, of smaller businesses and, and people around the world, particularly in EM. And, and that's why I think when the dollar does eventually turn lower, it could be a while yet, and it could be linked to when confidence really does come back in emerging markets. Jane, this is fascinating to me because the implication here is that the Fed essentially monetizing the debt of the United States, the United States selling an unprecedented amount of treasuries will have no effective consequence on the nation. I mean, that is sort of the the implication here. If the dollar remains the funding source du jour and and, and, the, and the the prime way that, that that people look for the currency, is that correct? Is that your is that your take? Well, it certainly does seem to be like that. And, and to put that into perspective, I remember writing essays on this when I was at university, and that was a long time ago. And yet, you know, we, we can project ourselves forwards till today, and we're still at this situation where, you know, when does the market crack? Now, if you like, you can liken this to Japan. Now, in Japan, of course, they've got a huge amount of debt, much larger than the, the U.S., and they have been issuing uh, huge amounts of JGBs. The Bank of Japan have been hoovering up huge amounts of, of JGBs as well. And for years, the market has said, well, you know, are investors going to give up on this? Is this wrong? Is, are yields going to go up? And yet they haven't. And it seems that as long as credit rating agencies uh, remain calm, um, then the market carries on uh, buying this debt. And it seems as, as long as the governments do just enough uh, to give this era of, the, the, of right. fiscal control, then the market seems to cope with this quite well. Well, Jane, thank you so much. Jane Foley with Rabobank. Julian Emanuel, I read every word of his note. He's got a note, folks, and then he's got seven pages of Excel spreadsheet in a font that I think I couldn't read when I was 17. I certainly can't read it now. So Emmanuel of BTI You're complaining about our us. guest before they even get to speak. They're fine. No, but come on. He's one of these guys. It's, it's like Do it at the end of the conversation. <laughs> it's like something off of a hieroglyphic oh at the Metropolitan God. Museum of Art. So anyways, Julian, translate for us right now. In this, in this continuum, Julian Emanuel, where do you fit in on sell in May and go away? Well, Tom, I hope you're going to disinfect the package with the magnifying glass that's going to be on your doorstep tomorrow. So that's the first thing I'd say. Look, if you if you think about it, it's very clear that the rally off the, the March 23rd low is very much about the Fed injections of liquidity, obviously uh, the fiscal policy as well. And now we're at this point where we've, we've come all this way. And, and frankly, what we're, we're looking at is several weeks of uncertainty. How does the economy reopen? What, what does that look like? And, you know, crucially, do we have a, a spike in, okay, in uh, coronavirus cases? Julian, and great, that's but, why May is risk. Okay, beautifully framed. Julian, Robert Kirby, the giant of Capital Guardian Trust of a million years ago, would say opportunity, uncertainty go together. Is this with this uncertainty, lousy March, great April, is now the mother of all times to reaffirm optimism? We don't think it's right now. We think May could be rocky. Ultimately, we do think that in the bigger picture, it is a time to reaffirm optimism. But I think we have to be very honest and upfront about this. There is an element of medicine that needs to progress over the next five or six months. We're not exactly sure what it is. Obviously, a vaccine would be the, the, the best case scenario. But we do need some sort of medical advance or some sign 
that the virus is going to be less of an issue as we reopen the economy. I totally agree, Julian. Science is going to be a huge factor in the reopening of all of this. I think there are some basic economic assumptions that you can make and start to think about the kinds of equities, the kinds of businesses you want to own in those scenarios. So let's talk about it, Julian. This could be a high debt, low growth world. Goldman is saying for that reason, you want to pay up for growth by the big players, by the big five by the big tech companies. That seems to be the call for a lot of people on Wall Street at the moment. Increasingly, a call on the margin of the conversation is something we discussed at the top of this program. Start to get exposure to small caps, the more cyclical aspects of this equity market. How do you manage your equity exposure right now, Julian? So we are on the small cap cyclical side. We looked at every bear market over the last 30 years and and absolutely with consistency, and think about it, it did vary, 2008, the financials led the way down, 2000, technology led the way down, et cetera. But invariably, what we saw is all the sectors and the styles and the market caps that were the worst performers during the bear market phase ultimately led the market higher once you made the transition to a new bull market. And for us, that means financials, that means small caps, that means energy and industrials. It does not mean and it doesn't mean sort of the shelter-in-place beneficiaries, which we think are going to be sources of funds as we make this transition to a renewable market, which is still right, ongoing. Right, right, right. It didn't Lisa, start. Lisa, sources of fun is Julian Emanuel talk is they're going to sell the puppies. <laughs> sell the puppies. <laughs> actually, uh, you could get a lot of buyers right now. I hear the pounds are actually out of puppies because everyone's adopting puppies. Julian, I do want to get a sense, though, of the numbers versus the hope. And I'm looking right now. There's about halfway. We're about halfway through the first quarter earnings reporting season. And the Russell 2000 small cap index reporting companies are down 16.4% year over year. That is with respect to earnings. And that is much more than you're seeing in the S&P 500 in terms of the, of the companies that have reported there. How do you square that with the optimism that you're expressing and recommending that investors go and buy these companies? Well, you, you square it with this whole idea that if you think about the relative returns of, of the S&D versus, versus the Russell, that is very largely discounted. You also look at it, and we think about it in terms of the risk. Several weeks ago, the Russell 2000 VIX got to an all-time wide versus the S&P 500 VIX and that told you that, you know, it was absolute abject panic in the small cap universe, even after the market had turned. And then the last thing we'd say about it is, you know, think about the targeting of the stimulus. We're not, you know, we're by and large targeting industries, but overall, the emphasis is on small, small town, you know, small Main Street USA companies, which, by the way, make up a large part of the electorate this November. So we think it's, it's in the price. So, Julian, this conversation has gone the way of many of these conversations go, which is, why do you want to buy X? And then I get told, because in history, it shows X, Y, and Z. And I think we can all agree that this shutdown, this economic downturn is totally unprecedented. So with that in mind, isn't the comfort blanket of history totally redundant as we exit this? Uh, No, I don't think so, because this has been so extraordinary that there really are only a couple of periods that you can measure against. Um, and if you look at it, sort of the, the, the incredible crash off of an all-time high coming in a month or two really only harkens 1929 and 1987. And from our view, the reason this isn't 1929, where you wouldn't say, you know, cyclicality is 
you know, is on the verge of bankruptcy and so on and so forth is because of the response. The, the, you know, we are now over 50% of U.S. GDP in enacted and proposed stimulus, right? And, and the question is, wow. can that wow. last? Yeah, it, it's an incredible number. Can that last long enough? There's an optionality to it that putting our derivatives hat on. There's an optionality to can it last long enough to get to a, a medical solution um, that helps yeah. reopen the economy? And we think the answer is likely going to be yes. Julian Emanuel, thank you so much. Great briefing. Bill Smead joins us right now. Smead uh, Capital, and of course, value investors. They sort of like Sequoia, like they own 25, 30 stocks, some real concentration there, less diversified, uh, and they're in the value space. Bill Smead, your track record over long term is nothing short of an act of God. It is a miracle, unlike the last year. You know, any way you want to look at it, it's been a tough, tough slog for large cap value away from the seven or eight stocks doing well. How do you manage that forward? Well, you, you get more excited about it, Tom. Uh, we took a, la- a look about a week ago at the year-to-date, one-year, three-year, five-year, and 10-year on the Russell 1000 value versus the Russell 1000 growth. And the spreads were 15%, 20%, 50%, and 145%. Uh, so so w- what it tells you that in virtually every single time period for the last 10 years, growth has beaten value and and that's we we find that really a key in the, for example the Berkshire Hathaway meeting because from a value standpoint today is a great day to be a Ben Graham person right this is a great point in time to be somebody that looks at asset values and cash flows and all those kind of important things for today and and uh, we we uh, we definitely like this market for that reason all right so Give us your sense of your takeaways from uh, Warren Buffett over the weekend. Uh, you know, he's always been enthusiastic about America long term, American exceptionalism, but it didn't necessarily come across in some of his actions. What, what were your takeaways? Well, first of all, you have to understand the capital structure of what he's running, right? He's running a $500 billion market cap company with 130 some billion dollars in cash and for him to be able to buy something it's got to be a very large company that is very deeply out of favor and the very largest companies as tom mentioned in the intro they've had favor uh uh, uh mason hawkins calls it uh, quality at any price see when when you're buying a dip and you're paying 30 times for Costco or 35 times for Visa or, or uh, 80 times or 100 times for Netflix and, and Amazon because they seem to be benefiting from the misery, you're exacerbating the growth trend, and then you're, you, there's massive selling on the value side, and there's no capital in the hands of the value people to sit there and buy with bids below the market. Yeah, but, but Bill, Bill I, I, I get that. But the fact of the matter is their revenue profile forward, it's like Mars and Venus. I, I, I mean, the revenue profile of some of those high-flying techs is extraordinary compared you to low what, single if, digit. If, if revenue <clears throat> profiles were important, and, and that was the most important thing, uh, 
uh, Target's revenues are up 8%, mostly on the back of their, their uh, e-commerce business exploding, and, and groceries, which are low. In other words, the thing that's doing the best for Target at the moment is the thing that Amazon does, and Amazon is finding, or, or Target's finding out the same thing that Amazon's finding out, is that even when the business is as good as it can possibly be, there's no margins in it. And where, where Target's going to make a lot of money is we're going to have a, a, a zillion four-year-old kids in four years, and the Oshkosh Bagosh overall, uh, uh, overalls are going to fly off the shelves. And there's huge margins in that. And, and by the way, a week ago there was a survey in the states that were about to reopen, and they asked people what are the three things they'd most like to do that they haven't been able to do. It was travel, clothes, and entertainment. Yep, exactly. And, and, so, Bill, are you concerned? Bill's fired or, I, I up guess, today, Paul. He's he fired is. up. I'm, I'm wondering, Bill, I'm going to tap into kind of your experience here, uh, your vast experience in the markets. One of the things people are concerned about, or not concerned about, or just wondering about is, will consumer behaviors be altered, you know, maybe permanently by what's happening here in the pandemic? Is this something akin to the Great Depression of the 30s where it kind of impacted a generation and consumer behavior are, are you thinking about some of those bigger issues and how people's uh consumer behavior might be impacted i personally believe and we as a company believe that people are drastically overestimating this okay. they're overestimating and let me give you an example uh when, when i was 15 years old 16 years old i kind of got bored with a lot of subjects in high school but i was always excited to go there every day because the state had a moat, 180 days a year. The cutest girls in my hometown had to go there, the 16 to 18-year-old girls. It's okay? appropriate. This is family, you know, yep. family, okay. so, family appropriate. So what's okay. going to happen? What's, what's <clears throat> going to happen as soon as we open up? The, the 15 to 25-year-old kids are all going to gather somewhere uh, where, where they think the, the opposite sex is going to be there. How'd and we that'll get be here? It. That'll, that'll drive the economy. I don't remember <laughs> this in the CFA curriculum, Bill Speed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bill, are you under-diversified now when you have this shock, when you have the economic backdrop we've got? Should I be Smead diversified or should I try to be more over-diversified? No, just the opposite. See, that's the deal with, 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 with the market. Explain that right to now. our audience, please. Yeah, so, so here's Buffett uh, recommending the S&P 500 index. He started his talk explaining that from 1929 to 1954, the index of the day in 1929 was the Dow, and it went nowhere for 25 years. Now, think of the time period since then. Uh, from 50, 54 to 66, the index was good. From 66 to 82, the index was terrible. Yeah. From 82 to, 82 to 99, the index was good. From 99 to 2011, the index was terrible. And then uh, up until... Two months ago, the index was really good for nine years. Okay, so what does that tell you? It tells you that half the time the index is terrible. Sure. And the index, it, the index <clears throat> is usually terrible beginning with a point in time where it's extremely popular and it gets heavily right. overweighted in the most popular stocks. And that's one of the reasons why we're so excited. I got it. Bill Sweet, it, it, yep. well, one final question. What do you think of the financials? Our audience wants to know if you find value in the financials or do you have to go to Europe to look at their bank valuations? No, we're, we're excited about the financials. Uh, the fact that Buffett couldn't say more nice things about them, even though he thinks very highly of them, to me was a buy signal. 
Hmm. Did he give a buy signal on the airlines? Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I looked and I thought, gosh, if those things go down, see, they're a lot lower than where Buffett sold them. Yeah. And then they're probably down another 10% today. They are. David because, Wilson well, said well, that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember <clears throat> two, two yeah. instances. We, we stopped flying for 18 days after 9-11, and it took a while to recover. And, and, and then uh, in 09, 08-09, obviously, things backed way off in the, in the airlines. And I can remember we were out starting to promote our company. We started in 07, and the fun started yeah. at the beginning of 08. So in 09, 010, 011, we went on what we called the no tour. We flew all over the country and pitched what we were doing, and everyone said no. But the fares were cheap. But, <laughs> but by the end of it, the fares weren't cheap, right? In other words, by two or three years into it, everybody was yeah. back to flying. I like that. No I, I'm going to steal that from Bill Smead, the surveillance no tour. Bill Smead, always thank you so much. And best to value uh, investing with Smead Capital. With the pandemic, with all the different news flows that we've had from it, and the statistics, the curve flattenings that we've seen and such, it's been important to get the perspective of the Johns Hopkins University. Joshua Sharfstein is with the Bloomberg School of Public Health. I should point out that Mr. Bloomberg is, of course, the founder of Bloomberg LP, this radio and television property as well. And he's been a philanthropist to his engineering school at Johns Hopkins and, of course, the greater university. Here is Joshua Sharfstein, an update on the pandemic. Overall, it's a plateau in the United States. It's not really going down particularly quickly. And for, yeah. you know, there are certainly places like New York where it is declining, but there are also quite a few places, even some smaller cities, where it is increasing. Well, it's increasing as well. Can they use the same methods from New York? I mean, what is the difference in medical treatment in Baltimore or New York versus the remoteness of some of these new places in America? I mean, you're putting your finger on an important issue, which is that the hospital system is not nearly as robust in many places. Many of the hospitals have been uh, have closed in rural areas. Those that are open are very small and financially unstable. And so um, this has created an enormous challenge. People are going to – and, and yeah. so it creates this dynamic <clears throat> where um, – People may feel like, oh, you know, we're never going to have a problem like New York, but it doesn't take a problem like New York to tip that entire local health care system over. There is all sorts of issues here about getting out of lockdown, every, you know, all the images over the weekend and all that. What have you learned in the last 24 hours about getting out of lockdown? Well, I think that people um, have to look past just the overall government decision. I think what's really going to matter is whether um, all of us, all the businesses are following good public health guidance to stay away from each other, to continue to physically distance from each other. You know, that, that is as important, I think, as the, some of the specific policies that are put into place. Um, if people just go out and defy what's being done, it's going to be very hard to keep this disease under control. And if we open a little, which may be appropriate in some areas, but people take that as a green light to do whatever they want to do, it, it's really going to be a problem. There is nothing holding this disease back except our ability to stay away from each other right now. 
Josh, when are we going to be able to understand this disease better? So there are a number of studies also trying to understand genetics, to try and understand why in certain countries, you know, the mortality rate is much higher than others, although the lockdowns were very similar. What are some of the questions that you want answered to, to understand it better, and how soon can those answers come? I think there are some very important questions, you know, including some continued questions about how the disease is transmitted um, and the role particularly that children play in transmitting the disease. I think that's going to be very important as we think about whether and how to open up schools. Um, there's also some basic issues about the illness, why people with certain conditions are at so much higher risk of dying, um, and is there any way to predict early in the course of disease who is going to have a more severe illness. I'm also very intrigued by the reports that perhaps earlier medical treatment of certain kinds really helps. I mean, if that can be established, that could be very, very important. If it turns out that earlier oxygen therapy or some other type of um, intervention matters, that might change the way that medical services are organized and keep a number of people out of the hospital. So I do think that we've gotten a lot of scientific information, and we're going to see every week more and more insights. I think the frustration is that science doesn't necessarily operate by, you know, one big headline and everyone agrees. It's going to be like these little, you know, incremental steps, a couple steps back, a couple steps forward. But it's the kind of thing when you look backwards, you'll see how far I think we've come in our understanding. Um, what can you tell us about the Gilead therapy? So there was a setback and now it seems to, to be on better track. Again, can we find out by the summer if this is one of the biggest hopes for the world? This particular therapy, I think, is going to be of potentially of some benefit, but up, um, most likely not of like a major, you know, uh, tremendous benefit. I think what I mentioned last time, I still think, which is we're going to have to see the ongoing studies which are, sh are using that drug at different stages of the illness because the medicine might work so-so at one stage of the illness, but work much better or not at all at a different stage. And so it's going to be like a bunch of little studies that will add up to a much greater understanding. And then when, as we learn more about a particular medication, we'll learn more about the disease. If it turns out that, you know, trying to block viral replication really makes a lot of the difference if it's given early, if the drug's given early, that might help us target other kinds of therapies. So I'm hopeful that we'll learn more um, from these other studies that will we'll round out the picture of Remdesivir. Joshua Sharfstein, the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.